0: Welcome to Securiosity for December 6th. I'm Greg Otto.
1: And I'm Jen O'Daniel, bringing you the best weekly wrap-up of InfoSec news.
0: DHS has set the agenda for agencies when it comes to vulnerability disclosure programs. We'll break down what that means.
1: In our interview, we talked to FireDome co-founder Sharon Mursky about IoT security and the future of her company.
0: Big deals, small deals, they all happened over the past two weeks. We will talk about them all, but first, let's get to that InfoSec news.
1: DHS's Cybersecurity Agency uses its binding operational directive authority as a tool of last resort to get agencies to clean up their security practices. For its latest directive, which compels civilian agencies to establish vulnerability disclosures programs, DHS has taken the unusual step of asking for public feedback on the order before issuing it. The draft order, which CyberScoop first reported on it in October, seeks to rectify the dismal number of agencies that have VDPs which are common in the private sector. Greg, is this a last resort for DHS or are they just trying to be more inclusive?
0: Um, no, I really think it is a last resort because I think, you know, I don't think the uh, cybersecurity teams at DHS like throwing down mandate after mandate. I think they hear from the agencies that, look, we don't have the funds to meet all of these mandates, so please stop doing it. But at the same time, if agencies aren't being proactive about cybersecurity, and especially with a vulnerability disclosure program, um, I mean, I don't, I don't blame DHS for doing what they're doing. I mean, these vulnerability disclosure programs—they don't have to be like these super in-depth bug bounty programs where it needs to be just large check after large check for for vital systems. It can literally just be an email address for somebody to, to, to contact somebody inside an agency if they find a small vulnerability. It should not be that hard to set stuff like this up. So if agencies aren't doing it, of course, DHS was going to turn around and go, okay, we have the authority to do this. So we're going to force agencies to do this. Because look, the, these federal agencies need to have uh, a, a way to have people contact them if there are issues. There's not enough people to look at all of the vulnerabilities that are public facing when it comes to government agencies. So if there are people out there in the public that want to look for these bugs and inform the agencies that these bugs are out there, they need to have something set up. So good on DHS for forcing agencies to do this.
1: I mean, it seems like a win then
0: yeah, I mean, it, it really is a win. I mean, it's a shame that DHS had to like twist people's arms into doing it, but right. look if it sets up a you know, a security at Department of State or I mean, that's just a hypothetical. I'm not sure uh, exactly what agencies do and do not have these systems. I know that there are there are few and far between. I'm, I'm sure that like GSA has one. But um, as far as anybody else, I don't know off the top of my head. I just know that the number is very small. I think it's only like 10 agencies have this set up. But um, that number needs to be higher. So I'm glad the DHS turned around and said, okay, yeah, we're going to force you to do this because it needs to be done. So a contractor who has been working at the National Security Agency since 2017 has been charged with five counts of falsifying her timesheet, which amounted to the government paying her and her company $100,000 in all, according to an indictment filed in Maryland last week. The contractor, Melissa Heyer, allegedly filed hours claiming to have been working from a skiff when she was actually elsewhere. Uh Bradley Moss, an attorney who specializes in national security law, told Cyberscoop that in the overwhelming number of occasions the agency will notify the individual in writing of the timesheet findings and offer an opportunity to correct or clarify the facts. If the discrepancies can't be rectified, financial restitution is often sought, and in thirteen years, Moss said he's rarely ever seen criminal charges brought. Jen, it just seems simple that you shouldn't lie about your time cards.
1: Well, that and like I don't know. I feel like you probably badge into a skiff. It's not like it's not clear um, whether or not you were in there. So even if you are sort of um, a malicious person, this is just stupid.
0: Right. It's just stupidity. You know, it's funny to hear from Moss to say he's rarely ever seen criminal charges brought because we went back and looked over some DOJ announcements and they've been pretty adamant. Of if you're going to do this, we're going to charge you with basically stealing from the government. Like it, it, the government has no time for this, and I don't blame them. Like stop weighing taxpayer money, stop trying to get rich off of taxpayer money, and doing so in the laziest fashion possible. Like you, you d- deserve the charges brought against you if if this is what you're going to resort to with taxpayer money. So yeah, don't be don't be stupid. And, and it's it is like you said, it is this is a very stupid scheme. In that you badge into a skiff, like they have electronics set up to basically be in, uh, you know, a time card, and it's a time card via electronic means. So if you're badging into a skiff and then people are saying that you're not there, hmm, wh- like what's going to happen? What did you think was going to occur?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, there's only really one way this could go, and I think you have to do this kind of thing to um, make sure other people don't do it.
0: Yeah. So, yeah, not surprising and um, tough one.
1: So the insurance company of the state of Pennsylvania argued in the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit that it does not need to fund a legal defense for the Landry restaurant chain following a breach undercover in 2015. J.P. Morgan Chase and its payment processing arm, Paymentech, filed a $20 million suit in 2018 against Landry's, alleging the company had failed to compensate the bank for breach related costs. Chase accused Landry's, which operates Bubba Gump Shrimp, Rainforest Cafe, I didn't know that still existed, and Joe's Crab Shack locations, among others, of failing to reimburse the bank for post-breach assessments conducted by Visa and MasterCard. Hackers spent months lurking inside Landry's systems from 2014 to 2015, accessing customers' payment card information from some 350 locations. Greg, do you think AIG should pay up?
0: I I actually don't. Reading the facts of this case, I mean, it seems like... That AI or the the company is asking the the restaurant company is asking AIG to go beyond the scope of their plans. I mean, that's right. Th- th- this is covering their plan is supposed to be covering them for the you know technological and associated costs that that have to do with their internal systems. Anything that is external and the fallout from the breaches, that's on Landry's. Like. <laughs> It, it it really just is. Um, you know, if there are other associated costs, I mean, that insurance is never going to cover that. Like, read your plan. Uh, we've talked about it a lot. And I think that cyber insurance, there's a little bit of a mini reckoning going on with cyber insurance, because I don't think the insurance companies really get what goes into a cybersecurity attack. But that being said, it's also upon the companies buying the cyber insurance to know your plans. Like that's just that's just a staple of, of any insurance plan, whether it's your health insurance plan, your car insurance plan, any sort of life insurance plan, any sort of insurance plan. You got to know what is covered and what isn't. And I'm sorry, that's your cyber insurance plan doesn't cover every little dollar that is spent due to a cybersecurity attack. So I kind of see where AIG is coming from. I would be really surprised if Landry wins this case.
1: Yeah, but I guess um, you know Landry does have to make the try, right? I mean, you know who who really knows how these things sort of shake out. Um, but yeah, they should have read the plan. They should know what the plan says, and they should um, buy the appropriate
0: insurance. But I also feel like too you're going up against an insurance company. They spend all of their time in court. Like th- this is what AIG does. Like go to court to fight the claims of their plans. Like I, I just don't get the feeling that Landry. AIG and all insurance companies, I feel like, are, are like well attuned to fighting these cases. Like This is just going to end poorly for Landry's. Just again, read your plan. So the FBI has assessed all mobile apps developed by Russian entities may be counterintelligence threats to the United States. That's according to a letter the FBI sent Senator Chuck Schumer on Monday. The letter, which Cyberscooped obtained, was sent in response to Schumer's concerns about FaceApp, that photo-aging app that went viral earlier this summer, which the FBI said is, in fact, a counterintelligence threat. The FBI's concerns center around the legal framework that allows governments to access data in Russia, which has rapidly evolving guardrails. The letter is timely, considering Russian President Vladimir Putin... Earlier this week, signed legislation mandating Russian apps and software come installed as a default on all smartphones, computers, and smart TVs sold in Russia. Jen, look what FaceApp hath wrought here.
1: <laughs> so so a couple questions for you. One, did you use FaceApp?
0: No. No.
1: Okay.
0: Absolutely uh, not. I knew right away. No, I didn't know that it was like a Russian app, but I was like, oh, yeah, no, I don't need to be sending my photo to some, uh, I like, I didn't know. I didn't know where it was going. And because I am a, you know, a healthy paranoid when it comes to that type of stuff, I don't know where that's sitting. I don't know what kind of other data that the app is collecting off my phone. No, thank you. Pass.
1: <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sad to say that I I can think of all kinds of um, uh, cybersecurity company execs um, that, that used it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we need to be more um thoughtful by the apps that we download we need to pay a little bit more attention um i'm not surprised by this at all i mean why wouldn't russia um put apps out there that we could um use that they could take data from us like there's no question in my mind that of course they're going to do that we should be paying more attention
0: right absolutely absolutely um, I mean, it, it kind of goes hand in hand with, you know, the the IRA and what they've been doing on social media and how easy it is to uh, manipulate some people on social media. Like, it's the same thing. Like, we're suckers. I swear to God, we, we are just such big suckers when it comes to this social media stuff that not an ounce of thought is is ever put into the ramifications of our behaviors. And this is just another example of it.
1: So the North Korean government has long viewed cryptocurrency and the blockchain technology that underlies it as a key to evading U.S. sanctions. Under U.S. law, helping the hermit kingdom navigate sanctions by exporting know-how, technology, or services as a crime. That is what 36-year-old Virgil Griffith is accused of doing after he spoke at the Cryptocurrency Conference in North Korea in April. U.S. prosecutors accused Griffith of identifying North Korean government officials at the conference who asked him technical questions about how the blockchain works. Griffith faces 20 years in prison for allegedly violating the International Emergency Economic Powers Act. Greg, that seems simple. Um, Don't go to North Korea to talk about the blockchain, right?
0: Yeah, I do not understand the thought process here at all, especially because if you read uh, the charging documents, he he had asked the State Department for permission to do this, and the State Department said no. What did you think was going to happen if you defied the government and went over there and and, and talked about blockchain?
1: So how did this come about? Did, did the government there send him an invitation to speak at something?
0: I, I think actually how he was recruited was there is like a North Korean government adjacent group that is actually uh, headquartered in Spain. And I think that that group sponsored – a Bitcoin, blockchain, cryptocurrency conference in North Korea, and they invited him to come speak. Now, Virgil Griffith um, is, I'm not sure exactly his title or exactly how he's attached, but I know he's pretty high up in the world of Ether and Ethereum, which is one of the more popular non-Bitcoin cryptocurrencies. But I believe that that group in Spain reached out to him and said, come talk about the technology. And he claims that what he talked about over there is no different than what he has already posted online in terms of his knowledge and research and work into Ether, which I get. But I, I don't I, – I, for the life of me, don't understand why he thought that – Going to North Korea, which you can't do—like this—it's frowned upon for like ninety-nine percent of the U.S. population to travel to North Korea. I mean, there's a travel ban. So, what did you think was going to happen? Like, I could go over there and talk about journalism. And I'm guessing that it would be highly frowned upon and I would be facing, you know, some law enforcement questions, if not charges on that as well. So you're going over there to talk about the technology that North Korea is using to evade U.S. sanctions. I, I, I just I'm at a loss for words on what exactly this guy thought was going to happen.
1: Yeah, I mean, I kind of wonder what his thought process was to to be told, no, you can't do this and then doing it anyway. But I just looked at his um, Wikipedia page and I see, you know, just some of his published writing is is kind of interesting, right? Like how to derive mother's maiden name using public records. And, you know, so I think he is like a little bit out there and, um, you know.
0: Right. And so and that the argument to me that, well, all my stuff is out there anyway, and I'm just going over there to talk about the stuff that I already have out there on the internet. Well, why wouldn't you just let them read it on the internet? Like, yeah, North Korea has the internet. And the people that are worried about this type of technology are the people that have access to the internet in North Korea. Like we're talking about the North Korean government. They've already found your stuff. So again, why are you going over there? Like what's different? What is different? And...
1: (laughs) I mean, it just seems like incredibly stupid um, you know, there's just really no um, no question that he did something wrong here, um, you know, regardless of whether or not he was giving them new information or not. But it just seems like we shouldn't be going over um, to North Korea to talk about um, technology that helps them win.
0: Yeah, it's just – I agree. It seems pretty simple, but here we are. <laughs> so – in the world of cybersecurity business over the past two weeks, we've seen some small raises, uh, some bigger raises, some acquisitions, actually, that are really, really interesting. So let's dive into this. Uh, Panorays. sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, uh, Panorays, a NYC-based provider of automated third-party security lifecycle management, raised $15 million in Series A funding. Their product is a SaaS-based automated third-party security lifecycle management platform, which basically allows companies to view, manage, and engage on the security posture of their enterprise and examine third parties, vendors, suppliers, and business partners to help them stay more secure. Cyberhaven, a Palo Alto, California-based provider of data behavioral analytics, raised $13 million in Series A funding. The round was led by Vertex, Costanoa, with participation from Crane Venture Partners and angel investors, including Facebook's former chief security officer, Alex Stamos. Israel-based cybersecurity startup, Simulate, announced on Tuesday that it raised $15 million in Series B funding. That round was led by Vertex. The company offers a cloud-based breach and attack simulation platform that helps organizations test their security controls by running thousands of attack simulations And then on the acquisition side, Tenable, which we all know based in Maryland, Rangula helped start them, announced that it had acquired Indigy, a provider of cybersecurity solutions for OT environments, for $78 million in cash. And Palo Alto, again, announced its intention to acquire Aparito, a cloud and identity vendor. Palo Alto said it plans to purchase the company, which helps customers improve their cloud access controls for $150 million in cash. Jen, what do you think?
1: You know, I'm mildly surprised that we're seeing yet another company that's um, looking at third-party vendor risk. Obviously, that's um, probably where we're most vulnerable. Um, But at the same time, it just seems like we're seeing so much of that um, just over and over again. Um, so, you know, but good on them for raising um, a big round.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, I think this is a good idea. It's a it's a good idea in the face of bad behavior also, too. I feel like sure. if companies yeah. and enterprises could be able to wrap their arms around all the assets that they have in-house, there wouldn't be a product like Panoros or any of the other similar products out there. You would just be able to figure it out on your own. Um, but, uh, because that is not the reality, I think that this product actually is smart because you need to have as much visibility as possible into what you're using. So, and look, we talk about supply chain and risk management, uh, all the time. And a big part of that is Mm -hmm. watching the third parties, the vendors and all the other suppliers that you use on a day-to-day basis. So, um, yeah, uh, smart product and not surprised that, uh, they saw a pretty big series A. Yeah. So now we will go to our interview with FireDome's Sharon Mersky. Really interesting product. Speaking of uh, business and Series A, FireDome recently had a uh, Series A that we told you about. So we called up Sharon and wanted to hear more about what they're doing in the field of IoT security and uh, how they see the business growing. Check it out. Okay, joining us now is Sharon Mursky, the co-founder and COO of FireDome. Sharon, thank you for joining us today.
2: Uh, Thank you. It's a pleasure. Good morning.
0: So for those that are not aware of FireDome, what exactly is it that FireDome does?
2: We do a cybersecurity solution for IoT manufacturers. We basically help them protect their device install base without any intervention from their from them, basically. So it's a complete autonomous solution that protects IoT devices wherever they are.
0: So I I know there have been a bunch of reports uh, lately. Uh, There was a recent study that said as many as 70% of IoT devices have well-known exploits. So how do you deal with that? And what do you tell people looking to secure their devices on how to combat things like that?
2: So the first question is, uh, who owns this problem? Like, who, who needs to solve it and who suffers from it? So if we're talking specifically about home IoT, for example, then there's a question, do the homeowners need to do something about it? The consumers who buy these devices, the ISPs that provide the internet service or the manufacturers of these devices? Uh, if we're talking about enterprise or industrial, the question is the same. Is it the CISO of the enterprise or the, or the factory, or is it the manufacturer of the device? So it's clear that there is a rise in cyber attacks on IoT devices. It's pretty simple. It's e- very easy to attack. And hackers learn new ways to make money off these attacks. And then the question again is who who needs to solve this problem? If you ask me, I'll tell you uh, that I believe strongly believe that this is a manufacturer problem, not only the end user, and therefore they should definitely take the steps to fix this problem. And that's why we chose to go that route and offer a solution for these IoT manufacturers.
0: So... How do you convince manufacturers that this is something they do need to be worried about? Because I've had conversations with some IoT manufacturers too and they say, you know, look, if there's a security problem, we're not going to push out any updates and we're not going to do any sort of rebates or refunds or recalls or anything like that. We're just going to put it on the consumer to throw it away and go buy uh, a new edition that has the you know, right security measures put in place.
2: So that so that's interesting because two things: a there is now regulation, like uh, le- uh, regulation and uh, legal actions. So now there is a new um, a new law in California, uh, for example, uh, that forces IoT manufacturers to put uh, reasonable cyber uh, security um, measures on their devices. And there are new standards and regulations on the space more and more. So this will definitely push the pressure on the manufacturers. And um, that said, I also, of course, from part of my job, I talk with a lot of manufacturers and I'm in this space and I see it a little bit different than what you just um, described because the problem is um, they suffer from, from the bad press. They suffer sometimes from needing to do a recall on their devices. There was a big recall um, after the Mirai attack in 2016 that uh, I don't remember now the manufacturer exactly, but he needed to um, recall 4.5 million devices. And there's more and more pressure from the press. For example, there was a Samsung tweet. Samsung support uh, in the US did a tweet um, on their on their channel, and they said something like. That exactly like you run the malware, uh, malware protection, uh, antivirus uh, on your computer, you should do the same on your smart TV. They got so much, so many bad comments and backlash from that tweet that they took it away, and uh, they deleted it. And then they announced a little bit after that they're now putting in place and uh, much more severe cybersecurity uh, standards on their on their smart TVs. So there is this pressure from the press, definitely. There is also pressure from from the users that they want to buy uh, secure devices. There is, I think, if I'm not mistaken, 24% of users that are, don't buy even devices because they're afraid uh, of uh, their privacy and uh, cybersecurity issues. So there's definitely more and more pressure from users and the press and government for them to take action and do something about this problem.
1: So, how does a conversation with um, a manufacturer go? Um, how much time do you have to spend education educating them on sort of the potential security breaches, and you know, sort of how this could help their bottom line um, in the end? Or do people, or do manufacturers just already know they need to solve this problem?
2: So, it's somewhere in between. And so they know there is a problem, they know they need to solve it, but we're like in the 80s before uh, antiviruses were uh, were invented, basically. So now what happens with most manufacturers is that the task of security for their devices is on their R&D teams. And their RD teams are not cyber experts and they are doing a lot of other things besides security. So what usually happens is that the VP RD or someone from the top says, okay, we need to do something about security. The RD has one engineer or a couple of engineers that need to do it on top of their daily job. And what they do is they do best practices, which is what's called security by design. These are static procedures. So, for example, closing ports, uh, not um, doing, using certificates and um, and um, encryption and things like that. Uh, from the get go, from the design phase, the problem is uh, that hackers do not wait <laughs> until you do penetration testing once a year, once every six months. They, fa- they find a vulnerability and vulnerabilities can be found all the time, as you know, and they find a way in. So the problem is that currently there aren't enough sophisticated tools like you see in the, in the world of enterprise and cybersecurity for enterprise. And so that's exactly what we offer with the, with FireDome, that, that proactive real-time security solution that adapts to the ever-changing threat landscape. And when we talk with, with these manufacturers, they admit that they have a problem. It's important for them. But they're not knowledgeable about the option that there is a better way to do that. Uh, so that's part of the education. The, the second part of the education is because a lot of these attacks haven't happened directly on the manufacturers. I mean, like... um a targeted attack on a manufacturer per se, but it's more uh, on an enterprise, on more researchers doing it. The catastrophe is bound to happen, but hasn't happened quite yet. This is um like any other cyber solution. It's, it's like buying um, insurance, basically. So there is that tension, what is the right time to buy an insurance? But again, more and more with the pressure from the press and new things, like I don't know if you you saw that there was a targeted attack on Xiaomi pet feeders um, about a month ago. So there are more and more of these attacks happening, and therefore this conversation becomes easier for
0: us. So... You know, Talking about the threat landscape, what do you see as far as the threat landscape when it comes specifically to IoT? What do you think IoT manufacturers should be focused on or what are they worried about most from ransomware, just straight malware, DOS attacks, fleet hijacking, crypto jacking? What do you see the biggest threats to the IoT landscape? Um,
2: can I say all of the above? <laughs> it's, uh, it's really like everything is happening and um, I everything is happening and we see everything. And um, I don't know if there is something that should be more worrisome to, to the, to the manufacturers. If we're talking about fleet hijacking, that's basically the worst that can happen for to them uh, because basically they lose uh, control of their fleet and who knows what's going on at that point. If a malware, that's also pretty bad. So all of the above could have very catastrophical uh Impact.
1: So what exactly did you see in the market that caused you to start this company?
2: So I started the company together with my two co-founders and um, my co-founder Moti Shkornik, and, uh who is the CEO, and uh, Ochen, who is the VP R&D. Moti was 15 years in the Israeli prime minister office He ran uh, he was the head of the cyber team for the Prime Minister of Israel, which was a 250 people unit. And what they did mostly was offensive cyber. So he saw from the other side how easy it is to hack to IoT devices. And at the time he was enjoying that, of course. But he understood that this is a real issue that needs to be solved. And when we joined forces, the three of us, we were thinking exactly like we talked in the beginning of this conversation, we know there is a problem. The question is how to solve it, not from a technical standpoint, because and I can talk about that part in a second, but from a, a market a, a market standpoint. So who is the right, what is the right angle to solve this problem? Whose problem is it? And that's why, after talking with a lot of manufacturers and understanding the market, we decided to to go in a very contrarian way because a lot of a lot most of the cyber companies go to the enterprises. Most of the cyber companies in the IoT space, if it's we're talking about home, go to the ISPs or directly con- to consumer. We went this route of the manufacturer because we strongly believe and we see evidence in the field that this is the right
0: way to go. So, Sharon, we'd like to end every interview on Securiosity with a random question. And, Free, what's the best piece of advice that you've ever received?
2: What's the best piece of advice that you ever received? Um, never ask for permission, ask for forgiveness. I think that's a good one, especially in startups. Okay, there we go. Move it-
1: what IoT device can't you live without? Um, I can't live without
2: my Google Home or Alexa. I have both at home. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, we have like in every room. <laughs> I have an every room. In one room, we have both, which is kind of, kind of confusing. And my three-year-old son needs to remind me which one I'm talking with, but. Uh, but, yeah, I got so used to asking what's the weather today, what's the time, putting timers, putting songs. that It's like I carry what my Google Home sometimes with me when I travel. It's that bad.
0: Oh, wow. Oh, wow. So You actually like do, – do you prefer one over the other?
2: It's different use cases.
0: So uh, it
2: depends on what I need to do. Okay. Okay.
0: All right. Sharon, really appreciate you on board. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks again to Sharon for joining us, and Jen. Uh, I, I really, you know, it, it's really, really interesting to hear, uh, you know, the the vendor conversation when it comes to IoT and how. Companies like FireDome are helping companies wake up and realize that oh, okay, this isn't just going to be a problem that we can solve by placing the burden on the consumer to buy a new product whenever there's a security issue.
1: Right. No, and and I think it's important, but I still think we're in a place where it is getting pushed to the consumer, and the consumer um, isn't necessarily educated enough yet um, around this problem. Definitely. But more important, when's the last time you we went to a rainforest cafe?
0: Uh, I want to say I have been to one. I want to say I think there's one in the Miami airport.
1: Because I can recall going to one in like the 90s at like Springfield Mall or Tyson's Corner Mall.
0: Yeah, I think I was at one in um, Disney. I think it might have been like Disney World or Myrtle Beach or something like that. Um, Got it. I think that is. I think that I was forced to go to one because <laughs> I was stuck in an airport coming back into the country from Hurricane Sandy in 2012 when it just ravaged the East Coast and I couldn't get back to the East okay. Coast. So I was stuck in an airport and I just had to, you know, had to grab something to eat.
1: Um, Wait, with kids or without kids?
0: No, this was this was without kids. This was like 2012. Um, oh, I think yeah, it was okay. actually coming back from my honeymoon, so uh, <laughs> I was stuck in a Miami airport and just needed uh, something awesome. to eat. I don't know if it's still there anymore, but um, I, I yeah, I don't, I can't remember ever seeing a rainforest cafe outside of the state of Florida.
1: Okay, yeah, I mean there there was one here locally in the nineties. Um, I kind of think at some point it was like a normal thing to have in a mall, um, but I thought it. I was long out of business because like who actually wants to eat there
0: but yeah um, okay no, it's been a while it has absolutely been a while yeah. yeah so all right and next week we will be off again and then two fridays from now we will have our last episode of the year so everybody hold tight and we'll see you in a couple weeks
1: as always stay curious